0: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you today in the house of the Lord. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today, we come to church number six of the seven that Jesus addressed specifically in the book of Revelation. We come to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, God's Word to us this morning, therefore, is from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name i will make those who are of the synagogue of satan who claim to be jews though they are not but are liars i will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that i have loved you since you have kept my command to endure patiently i will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. Father God, with the work of your Holy Spirit to bring your truth, your teaching to bear on each of our lives. Even though your word was was written and given So long ago, we know that you still speak, and as you speak, I pray that we will avail ourselves to you in the work of the Holy Spirit to teach and to instruct. Lord, correct us where we are disobedient and wrong and stubborn. Comfort us, Lord, through your word as we wonder and as we hurt and even as we doubt. Lord, give us courage and conviction to stand strong against the obstacles that we face in this present world just like our brothers and sisters so long ago stood strong in the opposition that they faced. Lord, may we be found faithful just as they were found faithful. And may may we... Look forward to the promises to them that are are promises to us as well for those who patiently endure. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words to not get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself, especially as Jesus is lifted up, and it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. First off, I want to say a welcome to those who are joining with us online today. We're so glad that you're here. And I wanted to give a very special welcome to Tom watching in Nevada today. Uh, Tom's a former Arroyo Grande resident who was a part of our church uh, a few years ago and has since uh, moved to Nevada. Tom, we, uh, we wish you well, hope you're doing well, and uh, joy and the peace of the Lord be upon you. Brother, thanks for being part of Oak Park and our family uh, still. As we get into church number six, church in Philadelphia, just got to remind everybody, this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, all right? This goes back a couple thousand years, Philadelphia, a small town in what is now western Turkey. As you see, the seven churches that began in Ephesus, and this was just a, a mail route. It was a transit route that would go up through Smyrna, Pergamos, and then all the way down to Laodicea. So as Jesus is addressing these churches, it's just on the mail carrier's route. He's including us a wide variety of churches. But today we come to Philadelphia, a name that's obviously so well known to us. But the Philadelphia of then is nothing like the Philadelphia of today. Back then, the city of Philadelphia was the youngest. It was the smallest. It was the most nondescript. It was the most insignificant of all of the seven. While the other six cities traced their histories back some more than a thousand years, Philadelphia was the new kid on the block. Are new kids on the block from Philadelphia? No, never mind. Don't worry about that. There is no way I will ever admit to listening or even knowing about new kids on the block. But anyway. But Philadelphia back then was a relatively new city. It had only been around a couple hundred years. It was actually established in the, the, the mid-second century B.C. So at the time of this letter, near the end of the first century A.D., it was only a couple of hundred years old. It was conquered, and that area was conquered and established as a city by King Attalus of Pergamum at that time. And what he wanted to do as he was bringing Greek culture into that region, Philadelphia's location was situated, there would be a gateway to the rest of what was known as the Asian world at that point. So Philadelphia was established as a cultural center, a missionary city for Greek culture. That was the way uh, civilizations conquered back then, was not only to militarily conquer, but to conquer winning the hearts and the minds of the people. Some things never change. They always seem to say the same. That was the goal of conquest, was not just to militarily conquer an area, but to culturally conquer an area. So the Greeks were bringing their, their idea of civilization Their idea of culture, they were bringing their learning, their education, their philosophy, their way of doing life. Philadelphia was established for the sole purpose of being a launching base for the spread of Greek culture. It was located in a very fertile and rich valley, had mountains on one side and some tributaries of of a major river was there as well. And so the land was very rich. They they, they uh, they, they raised a lot of sheep there, so there was a wool industry. But the biggest, the biggest industry in the area was grape growing and wine production. I'm sure we can resonate just a little bit with that. The Greek philosopher and historian Strabo actually described the region's wine as most excellent. Just echoes Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, doesn't it? Most excellent. Their wine was of exceptional quality. That's what the region was known for until the end of the first century If the book of Revelation was written in somewhere uh, AD 94, 95, 96, somewhere around that time period, this letter comes on the heels of an order from Emperor Domitian, the the Roman emperor at the time, a cruel and evil man uh, for a a lot of things, not only because of what I'm about to tell you that he did next. Domitian was cruel, and he was an evil man because he did authorize the persecution of Christians throughout the empire. But perhaps even more jarring and more concerning to some is he actually, in AD 92, so maybe just three or four years before this letter was written, he mandated that half of the vineyards in this region be tilled back into the ground. Because... There was was a drought, there was a crop shortage of corn in the area and other sustainable foods, and there was an overabundance and an overproduction of wine. Never a good thing for a civilization. At least some will argue. So when that edict was issued, Philadelphia, which already had a struggling history, This was a huge economic blow to the area. This name Philadelphia obviously means brotherly love. You're probably familiar with that because of the Philadelphia here in the United States. But it was named after the nickname of the founding king, King Adalus. His nickname was Philadelphus. He was evidently a very, he was a loving bro, so to speak. And so it was named after him. As I mentioned, the region had a lot of, a lot of issues. It said it was, it was a beautiful area and it was, it, it was, it was known for trade and all these industries that it produced, but it was in a region beset by earthquakes. Last week we looked at the church in Sardis and Sardis had been absolutely destroyed in AD 17 by an earthquake. Now Sardis was a much more magnificent, impressive city with a lot of architecture, a lot of culture and a very, very long history. Philadelphia did not have the same level of history or architecture or just the physical structures, but Philadelphia was decimated in that same earthquake. And Philadelphia was also a recipient, like Sardis, of tax breaks and funding from the Roman emperor directly for the area to be rebuilt. But after rebuilding... What's the old adage, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Even after the city of Philadelphia was rebuilt, the majority of the population did not return. They instead opted to remain outside of town in smaller villages and enclaves because they didn't want to be caught in an area with larger buildings in the middle of an earthquake again. And the area had frequent earthquakes. So the city was small. The city was only being rebuilt. The city was economically depressed. People had moved to the suburbs, so to speak, although suburbs didn't exist back then. And the valley had plenty of people, but the city itself was weak and smaller and hurting. But even in this city with all these challenges, there was a church of Jesus. There were people who believed that Jesus was Savior and He was Lord. And they would gather together to worship Him and to serve Him and to learn about Him. And they would be a witness to the truth of the gospel in this city, even in these difficult circumstances. Like some of the other churches, we don't know exactly when it was founded or we don't know really anything about the makeup of the church at all. It's never mentioned again in Scripture. And given that it's such a smaller region and evidently a smaller church, it's virtually unmentioned in church history. There's a few little references here and there. But the Christians in this city, in this region, seem to just be a small, struggling church. It's virtually unmentioned in church history. The others, of of the other six, get mentioned somewhat frequently. But Jesus, to this Church, to this group of Jesus' followers in this troubled, uh, this difficult living situation area. Jesus has perhaps the most to say, and the most encouraging message of all. Jesus' message to the Philadelphian Church is very extensive. The commendations flow freely. I know your deeds. This is a common refrain in most of the churches are referenced. Jesus is saying, I'm watching you. I know what you're doing. Remember, earlier in the series, we talked about how, how every church, every congregation that is centered and formed around the truth of Jesus, and unfortunately today, there are many churches that claim the name Jesus that are not centered around the truth of Jesus dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. They're centered around other aspects of believing in Jesus. But every church that is truly centered upon the saving work of Jesus is given an angel as a, either a, like an overseer or a communicator, a messenger. Every congregation has an angel that is in constant contact with the Lord himself, telling on us, <laughs> telling on them, giving progress reports. We think our small little world may not matter and for the vast majority, it doesn't. But it matters to Jesus. Every church, large and small, healthy and unhealthy, vibrant and dying, belongs to Jesus, and Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus knows our deeds. KSBY may not, be, may not have covered our carnival that we did a few weeks ago. Jesus knows The Lord knows our deeds. And that's not why we serve to to impress Jesus. We serve because Jesus served us. And that means what we do, no matter how insignificant the world may declare it, it's significant in the throne room of the universe. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I will. It's not in the notes. And, and, and I'm not going, to, I'm not going to, to criticize anybody too much, but I just want you to be aware of something. So a few weeks ago, we launched the Don't Give Up campaign, which is the signs that we have on our property here, and, and a number of people took uh, the yard signs and the bracelets and things like that. Well, this week, we got a letter from the city of Grover Beach our signs are not in compliance with the GBMC, Grover Beach Municipal Code. So we have to take them down because according to the city code, I really hope this does not get back to the city council, um, because of the city codes, businesses are only allowed one yard sign on their property. Now, I will give some credit. This Dottie called and talked to the, to the, the compliance officer and she says, well, this is the point of the, the signs. The, the signs are to bring hope and encouragement, to address the epidemic of suicide that is, that is blanketing our, our nation and our, our society. And we have received between phone calls and, and emails and drop-ins, uh, we know of at least seven people that have contacted us saying, that is great. That is helpful. We got the letter Friday afternoon uh, a week ago. Friday morning, a lady called and says, I, I just need to let you know how important those signs are. And Dottie talked to her and says, she goes, well, you can come in, you can pick up a sign. I've got some bracelets for you. I've got some other things. She goes, sure, that would be great. Don't know the ladies. I don't even know her name. I don't know her story. I don't know what was going on in her life. But she was hurting. And those signs, some way God used to speak to her. So she came in. She got some more of the little cards and things like that. And Dottie had the chance to pray for her. Jesus knows her story. We don't know her story. We don't know what was going on in her mind, what's going on in her life, what's going on in her heart. But Jesus used that. I know your deeds. Simple signs. He's talked with the compliance officer, and, and he's worked some things out that we won't get our 30-day warning letter until the end of the month, because we we're, we were going to pull the signs at the end of August anyway, so we won't get the 30-day warning letter until the end of July, and that gives us 30 days, which is basically the end of August. I really hope that does not get back to the city council. So, shh, hard to, hard to be shushing when it's, when it's online now. We are going to comply. We're going to take a few of them down and rearrange them and some things like that. You see, we're a part of a larger story. And Jesus is, is not only observing what we're doing, but Jesus is actively working in us and through us. I know your deeds. Each angel gives a full report to every church. Jesus says to the church, I know you have little strength. The congregation was probably very small in number and limited in resources. If the area was hit with with a drastic economic impact, that would limit the resources. Jesus is fully aware of the obstacles they're, they're facing, the struggles they're facing, I know you have little strength. I know you're not as impressive as the churches in Ephesus and, Sarda and, and uh, um, um, Sardis and these other places, but you have little strength. And it says, to the smallest and probably most worldly insignificant of all the seven churches, Jesus has the most praise and the most to say and the most to promise. You have kept my word and not denied my name. We all know that there is strength in numbers, but what if the numbers are not there? What if there is not a congregation of hundreds or thousands that you know has your back to stand strong for Jesus? Jesus. What if it's only a few dozen or a small handful? What if it's only a couple of families in a city and in a culture that will not, will not respect or admire your faith in Jesus? It takes more courage to stand strong when you are alone or when only a small handful have your back than when you're backed up by the masses. This congregation has done that. The this, this specific reference is that... Is that um, there were some you know, people from the, the Jewish synagogue who were, every, who were evidently very vehemently anti-Christ in the sense that they had rejected that Jesus was the Messiah and they were harassing or somehow causing some problems with the small church. But there was also the cultural pressures. The pagan religions dominated the entire world at this point. Christianity was just a small, weird religious subset in a very religious culture. But Jesus says, you have not denied my name. And that's what the word Christian means. The word Christian means Christ's one of Christ, belonging to Christ, belonging to Jesus. That's what the word Christian means. It is not to be used as an adjective for music or for movies or for cruises, The the adjective Christian can only apply to people. We either belong to Jesus or we belong to the world. We are either of Christ or we are of the world. We are either Christ's one or we are the world's one. Belonging to some other false god and idol and, and whatever else it may be. They have not denied my name. They stayed loyal to Jesus. They did not renounce their faith. He says, you have kept my command to endure patiently. For those of you who love the book of Revelation and are often looking to it in the the sense of how our culture understands it as just a road map for the end times, which is not why it was written, I will give you a little secret there is one key to understanding everything in the book of Revelation, and this is it. The book of Revelation is written as an inspiration or as instructions to instill patient endurance for Christians. That's the entire purpose of the book. It's not to, it's not to plot our exit strategy It's not to figure out how we're going to escape this or that or whatever it is. It's the command, the call to patiently endure whatever is coming as Jesus judges the church first and then as he judges the world secondarily. It's to stand strong, to stay faithful, to keep focused on Jesus. That's the point of the book of Revelation. The timelines, the characters, the images, the symbolism is all secondary to that. At the end of the book, "Look, I am coming soon," Jesus says, "Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. How do we keep the words of this prophecy? Oh, well, do we, we design big end times charts and we figure out which nations and which peoples and which geopolitical associations are this and that. No! <laughs> Stop it! Stop giving them money, for goodness sakes. We keep, we keep the prophecy of Revelation when we keep close to Jesus, when we keep strong in the face, of opposition in america we face opposition we do not face oppression maybe those days are coming but the message of revelation is patiently endure the struggles the hardships the obstacles stay focused on jesus because he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and he is coming soon we we'll to talk about that a little bit towards the end the commendations to this small, relatively insignificant and struggling church, Jesus has effusive praise. There is no call to repentance. The other churches, Jesus, says, I know your deeds. I know you're doing this, but there's no but with Philadelphia. There's none in the call to repentance. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia. Those are the only two churches that Jesus has nothing but praise and promise for. And the promises that this small struggling worldly insignificant church Jesus gives the most effusive promises of all of the seven churches. It's most extensive. They just keep coming. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Remember, as Jesus described himself in the beginning, I hold the key of David. What I open, no one can shut. What I shut, no one can open. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who is sovereign. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, typically in the New Testament, open door is a reference to advancing the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's leading people to faith. In Jesus, it's evangelism. That's how the apostle Paul uses the word throughout his writings. That's what open door means. But at the heart, the gospel is an invitation to know Jesus. Not just believe in Jesus, but to know Jesus. It's one thing to believe and to intellectually assent: Yes, Jesus died for my sins on the cross. Yes, he rose from the dead. But it's one thing to, to know Jesus as saving, work, as saving work, but it's another to know Jesus as Lord. And to truly know what it means to be our Savior, the price that was paid, the love that was extended, the, the grace that has been offered to us, that goes beyond belief to knowing. So the gospel is an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. Not just a, not just a salvation transaction, but a transformation Of dead becoming alive, of old being made new. Jesus promises this church that he has opened a door for them, that no one, the emperor, those from the synagogue, those from the pagan temples, those from the banks and the trade guilds and everything else they had to deal with, none of them can shut the door that Jesus has opened for them. And I think the real key to understanding what the open door is, is we have to look to church number seven, the one that follows. The church in Laodicea receives some of the harshest criticism from Jesus. I'm not touching that one. I'm going on, I'll be starting on my vacation next week. I'll be here, but I won't be preaching. And Jonathan will be preaching on August 13th. And I dumped Laodicea on him. (laughs) Have fun with that. (laughs) But Jesus has this to say to Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Oh, but no, God's love is just be happy and do whatever you want to do, right? No. We're happiest when we do what the Lord wants us to do, and sometimes that's the opposite of what we really want to do. It's extremely simple, but it's also very complicated. I understand that. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This is what Jesus says. Here I am I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This verse has been horribly misapplied to, to refer to, to an initial belief in Jesus, to evangelism. That is not what this point is. This is an offer an invitation from Jesus to move from belief to knowing. Jesus is saying, move beyond the, the, the mere structure the mere categories of just believing in me but truly know me see the, the invitation is given to those who already believe in Jesus who already wear the name Jesus who are already trying to to serve Jesus they're just not doing a very good job of it and Jesus says, I'm right here the door is is closed right now but if you repent if you turn to me I will open the door And then I will come in and and we'll have dinner together. We'll share a meal. And that's always language in Scripture for inclusion and intimacy. Relationship. An open door symbolizes a close, deep, and personal relationship with Jesus. There are so many today who wear the name Christian, who, who ascribe to the name Christian, who will say that they're a, they're, a, they're a believer in Jesus. But there are also so many today whose focus is belief, not on knowing. They're missing out on the depth of relationship because they figured out who Jesus is and what he's done, so they're, they're secure in that. They understand some of the basics of biblical truth and teaching, morality, ethics, whatever it is, so they cling to that But we're missing out on who Jesus is. Getting to know him. To know truly what his his love for us means. What his desire for us to live in relationship with him means. But it doesn't mean just having all the right thinking. And he means having the right living as well. That door for the Philadelphians is an open invitation to know Jesus on a deeper level than so many others. Because Jesus knows their weaknesses. He knows that that they have little strength. He knows that they're facing obstacles. And it's through all those things that relationship really grows. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan come and bow down before you and know that I have loved you. Scriptures say, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We're so tempted to to teach people a lesson or to get back at them. The hardest thing to do is to turn them over to the Lord in his timing, whether it's in this reality or in the coming reality, and let the Lord handle it. Jesus says, I know you faced opposition. Believe me, I'll take care of it. The day is coming. You are mocked. You are ridiculed. You are contested now all the time. But those who say they love me, say they know me, but don't believe in me at all, they will be the ones to acknowledge that my love for you is true and real. You see, by this time in the first century, the rift between Christians and the, the Jewish religious structure, the synagogues and Judaism, had firmly, Judaism had firmly and officially rejected Jesus as the Messiah. For many years, for a few decades, Christians were still included in the synagogues, and and Christianity was seen as a a subset of Judaism because, well, Jesus is the Messiah, both for Jews and for Gentiles. And so the first few decades, there was a lot of familiarity and commingling. But as the decades passed, the division became greater and greater. Jesus moves on in his, his promises I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world as a testing. Persecution against Christians did intensify in some regions under Emperor Domitian. I mentioned that earlier. There's no explicit record of that happening in this this place at that time, but it did happen throughout the empire. But we've got to also remember we as Westerners, as Americans in particular, the, the, the unique founding of this country, the unique culture that has been created in, in modernity here in the West, that has embraced so much of not only Christian truth, but its foundations for every good thing in our society, equality and human rights and, 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 and value of life, all these things, they all emanate solely from a Christian basis. And we've moved beyond that. We've matured beyond that. We're like teenagers now who think they know better, right? That's what our culture's become. Well, we know that Jesus was important and we got all these good things from him, but we're going to figure it out on our own now. That's where our culture is. There's a a rejection of Jesus and and all of the Christian worldview that created all the good things in our society. And there's going to be a lot of junk that comes from that. But throughout history and even in much of the world today, and probably coming even more for those of us in the West. Conflict in the world and with the world is the Christian's natural condition in all eras. Jesus said, when the world hates you, remember that they hated me first. In this world, you will have trouble That's what Jesus told his followers. But here Jesus promises this little struggling small church that he will protect them. He will guard them in the things that are coming in their world and in the subsequent eras. And as Christians, we can embrace part of that promise ourselves. No one will take your crown. That's the symbol of victory and reward for faithfulness until death. The emperor may have taken their livelihood if they were involved in the, wine, the, the grape growing and the wine production industry. But Jesus says, no one can take your crown. I'm the one who opens the doors and shuts the doors. I'm the one who gives and takes away. If I give you a crown, ain't no one taking it. To the one who is victorious. This is where it gets really good. To the one who is victorious, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a series of names that Jesus will write on us. Those who are victorious, those who are faithful to the point of death, those who endure patiently, get to be in the temple and we get new tattoos. That's what it is. The temple is the metaphor for God's presence. Being a pillar in the temple means that's a a reference to strength and support and permanence. The pillars in the temples of the pagan idols in Philadelphia and in Sardis did not survive the earthquake. Some of them did. There's actually some, some, some ruins there now. But those temples fell. The temple of God, being a pillar in the temple of God, I mean, there, there is permanence and there is strength. To a church with little strength, they will be given strength. They will be front and center in the temple of God, which is the presence of God. And that's actually what the entire New Jerusalem is. is, is, is there's no temple in Jerusalem because the relationship with God is direct. God is with his people. The tattoos, special names that indicate in this order, ownership, inclusion, and intimacy. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will write upon them the name of my God. We see later revelation that those who belong to God are marked. Uh, Paul uses the language, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, I guess in, in the right kind of ultraviolet light or the, the right you know, beam of, of, of the Holy Spirit or eternity, whatever it is, there's a name written on our foreheads. It's the name of God, Yahweh. We belong to the God most high. You'll write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which means we're in, we're included, we're citizens of that new world that is coming. And then Jesus promises that I will write upon you my new name. Uh, Earlier for Pergamum, it was right you're going to get a stone with a new name, a personal name written on it. Shows Jesus' intimacy, Jesus' awareness of us as individuals. But now, Jesus will write his name upon us, his new name. Lots of speculation on that. We don't know what it is. It may be spiritually secret, or it could simply be this, King of kings and Lord of lords, property of, So we belong. As we look at Philadelphia, the Scriptures apply to us. So what about the church in Oak Park? What does the Spirit say to us? Well, these are the three things I came up with. In Jesus' evaluation, the numerical size of a congregation is irrelevant as a measure of health, vitality, or faithfulness. Yes, we are one of the smaller churches in the five cities, and I am grateful for New Life and Grace and and all the others who, who get to do so much wonderful work for the kingdom of God. But because I know the pastors of those churches, I know that all that glistens is not gold. There are strengths and weaknesses with every church. There are victories and there are failures with every church. And we must look to Scripture for any self-perception of strengths or weaknesses. We must never compare ourselves to New Life or to Grace or to Harvest or or the Coastal Community or any of the other churches in town. We're all on the same team or the same league, so to speak. We have different teams in the same league. They're not the competition. The competition is the kingdom of darkness, The the competition is the world. That is who we all wage war against. There is great benefit to being being a smaller congregation in number. And there are weaknesses as well. But We must always evaluate us in terms of what is Jesus calling us to do. Whatever Jesus calls us as a church family to do, he will then resource us to do just that. We always rely on Jesus. God has given us an open door as well, both corporately and individually. The open door is a a region, an area, a section of San Luis Obispo County that is quickly, quickly secularizing. We already lived and we have lived for years in the ninth highest post-Christian population in the United States of America. We are the highest post-Christian population on the West Coast. Post-Christian means those who have either moved beyond Christianity completely, and they're not looking back. It's people who have, who have virtually never had a church experience whatsoever. All that means is this. The fields are white unto harvest, for people hearing about Jesus. Most people have rejected Jesus because they've rejected the church, but they don't really know why they've rejected the church, and therefore they have no idea why they've rejected Jesus. It's all about caricatures and misperceptions and social media marketing. But for someone to be able to be a living flesh and blood representative of a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, that. That argumentation, that witness is irrefutable. So we have a huge opportunity with an open door. But it's also individual. The door is open for every person to move beyond believing in Jesus to truly knowing Jesus. To not just going through the motions of worship, to not just to instill the habits, but to truly know Jesus to know his love, his grace, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his forgiveness, and yes, his discipline, his rebuke, his correction. Don't bypass the spiritual vibrancy of a real relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus is coming soon. The day of the Lord is him coming here or you going there or me going there. It'll be here before we know it. Yes, it's been 2,000 years, and most people say, oh, this, this, this Christians, just, Christian's just a bunch of hullabaloo because Jesus hasn't returned. For one, I'm thankful that Jesus has not yet returned because there are still so many people I know and love who do not know the Lord, and I am praying for them fervently. I am using my weak words to try to, to communicate to them that Jesus loves them and that they need to to believe Jesus and know Jesus in order to truly experience life eternal. And that's what Scripture says. The Lord is patient because he wants everyone to come to repentance. And if Jesus came back today, that would be phenomenal. Even though the Mariners have never sniffed a World Series ever, I think I'd be okay in eternity without that. Some days I, I wonder why. I question that because the Mariner's World Series would be awesome. And if Jesus came back today, that would be great. The 30 pounds I need to lose would be gone. I don't think there's hair in heaven because hair is only a symbol of idolatry and pride. So everybody's gonna be bald. We'll just cut the process. It'll already be there. That'll be great. No more pain. No more crying. Eternity. No longer will faith no longer will we see by faith, we will see by sight, and that will be awesome. But at what cost? I have so many relatives and so many friends who still need to know Jesus. The opportunity as a pastor to, to get to meet people who come and visit who are who are searching for the Lord. I am so glad that Jesus has been patient in returning. Because I want them there. Jesus is coming soon. The old slogan for parenting is the days are long, but the years are short. If you've been a parent at any length of time, you understand that. So it is with being a Christian. Oh, the days are long. How many times have you prayed, oh Lord Jesus, today would be a great day to come back? I prayed that in college and graduate school probably 7,000 times. (laughs) Not prepared for this exam. Come back now, Lord Jesus. but thank God for his grace and his goodness in not coming back just yet. You see, Jesus is coming soon, so let's get to work. Let's get busy sharing the gospel, living the gospel, loving people in the name of Jesus, forgiving them, showing the light, being the salt, whatever it is that God has called us to, let us get to work in being a light being being a city on a hill, so to speak, for this community to come to know Jesus. Because somewhere between six and seven out of every 10 people you know or will meet in this area are not followers of Jesus. We got a lot of work to do. Let's get to it like to have Mike and the team come back up and by the way special thanks to Mike and Susan for filling in today <clears throat> appreciate their work their love for the Lord and while uh Tay is on uh, some some family uh, her and Robert are gone on a family time family vacation here for the next couple of weeks just really appreciate you guys filling in would you please stand as we we come to a time of communion And communion was instituted by Jesus the night he was betrayed, and it was to focus on what he was doing to save us. The cross was only hours away when Jesus instituted communion with his disciples. And it was to pay for our sin. It was to defeat death so that we could have eternal life. The cross and the resurrection was only hours away for Jesus. And as Christians, we continue to celebrate in the simple act of taking bread and taking juice to bring everything back to bear in what Jesus did for us.